begin looking at a passage of scripture that on the surface doesn't look terribly difficult to understand, but as I've looked at it, studied it, thought about it, I've realized that it's one of those passages that is more challenging than would appear at first blush. I want to begin this morning by asking you to to do a sort of little mental exercise. I want you to try to put yourself in the mindset of the people to whom James is writing. How would they be thinking? What would their mindset be? Remember, these people are, have been scattered. These people are refugees. These people are displaced and in many cases, desperate people. They've been persecuted. Their lives have been turned upside down. And now they are scattered throughout Israel and the Roman Empire. They are the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora. Most of them have come from Jerusalem. And these are the people to whom James is writing. And I think if you think about what was in their mind, the one of the first things that would come to mind is that they would be thinking about survival. They would be thinking about where my next meal comes from. How am I going to feed my family? How do I provide for my wife, for my kids? How do we survive? We have left everything behind. We fled Jerusalem. Stephen was murdered. You read about it in Acts chapter 8. Persecution broke out and they fled. And so I think they would be wondering, how do we survive? How do we make ends meet? How do we go about rebuilding a new life in this new location? And another thing I think they would be thinking about is the injustice of the whole thing. How incredibly unfair it was. How wrong, how unjust and there's a sense in which I think that sense of injustice, that sense of unfairness would have grated upon them. It would have been very frustrating. You know what it's like to be a victim. And you can imagine how they were feeling. They would have been longing to see justice done. They would want to see God judge the perpetrators, those who have caused so much sorrow for the early church, so much pain for the early church. Remember, Stephen wasn't the only martyr. He was the first. But there were many, many martyrs, some of them at the hands of the apostle Paul himself before God encountered and saved him. So these two thoughts, I think, survival on the one hand and a longing for justice on the other, are behind what James is about to say in these two small passages of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. So in James 4, 13 through 17, he addresses the suffering church. In this passage, he deals with a very natural urge that all of us have when our lives are thrown into complete turmoil to take control, to try to fix it, to get busy, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I think that was the instinct, that was the um, <clears throat> motivation that is expressed in this passage of scripture. And it's to that that Paul addresses himself first. And then secondly, in 5, 1 through 7, James speaks to the church prophetically about a group that he calls the rich. And we'll define them later on. 
The rich have caused the miseries that these first century Christians are now enduring. It's the rich that have caused them to suffer the way that they are suffering. And so it's to that group, prophetically, that James begins to speak about to these first century Jewish Christians. Now, as I've just said, this is a difficult passage of Scripture. It's not easy to understand. There are a couple of ways to understand it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my best take at it. I'm going to give you my humble, as I, but I, as I say to my kids, my humble but nonetheless accurate opinion. <laughs> but it is an opinion. It is my perspective, and I could be wrong. And that's why, you know, the, you know, the Bible speaks about the priesthood of all believers. As a preacher, I might stand two and a half feet above contradiction in your mind, but I don't. I have the word of God, and you have the word of God, and all of us have the responsibility to rightly divide it to understand it. We all have the Holy Spirit, and each of us are charged with the responsibility of reading, delving into, and studying the Word of God. So I will do my best this morning to deal with the challenges that come to us sometimes when we wrestle with the plain words of Scripture. All right, good deal? Let me just pray and ask God that he would bless this time now. Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, there are things in the Word of God that are hard for us. And it's not the scripture's fault, Lord, it's our fault. Uh, We are fallen creatures. We struggle to wrestle with truth. And I pray, Father, that as we do that this morning, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts. I pray, Father, for wisdom for myself to um, just present this passage of scripture in a way that will be edifying and encouraging to your church, I ask. And we ask it all in the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. So, very, two very natural responses to the circumstances that these first century Jewish Christians find themselves in. First of all, I need to fix my circumstances. Life's been turned upside down. I'm in turmoil. We got to fix this. And secondly, it's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. I want this situation Redressed. And so what James does to them is he gives them what I'm calling two secrets to suffering well. Two secrets to suffering well. And so the first secret that he gives them is this. When suffering in, or I'm going to add through, difficult circumstances, we need to learn to rest in the sovereignty of God, the sovereign will of God. Now, it's not hard to understand why these people are in such dif- who are in du- such difficult circumstances, who are living really in a sense of privation, it's not hard, hard to understand why they would be inclined to say something like, like this. Today or tomorrow, we're going to get busy. We're going to go to this town or that town, and we're going to begin to do business. We're going to begin to make a profit, and we're going to begin to put our lives back together. That's essentially what they are saying. We're going to start a business. We're going to travel. We're going to begin to make money. We're going to begin to fix this situation in which we find ourselves. Now, this is a very reasonable and, in fact, responsible and godly thing to do. I need to get busy. I need to take charge of my life. My life's been out of control for too long. 
I need to gain some control. I need to create structure. I need to bring order back into my life. I need to make some money. I need to care for my wife and my children. I need to forge a new life for ourselves in this new place that God has placed us. As I said, it's a very natural instinct. When we encounter disorder, when we face privation, when we have been victimized, when our life is thrown into turmoil, the natural inclination of all of us is to grab on, to take control, to take charge in order to bring order back into our lives. Being out of control drives us to seek control. And I think that's make, that makes sense, right? I think that's what's going on here. People who are out of control are seeking control. People whose lives have been thrown into complete disorder are trying to create order. And so these displaced Christian refugees are taking matters into their own hands. They're making plans and they're getting busy. I think it's a very, very natural inclination for all of us. Now, I asked Cindy if I could share this illustration with you, and she's more than happy that I I share it. Cindy's my wife, that I share it this morning. Cindy grew up in in a home where she had a very dominating, very controlling father before Christ intersected that home and changed changed that family. But she grew up in that environment where she was completely controlled by a very dominating, domineering, controlling father. And without being conscious of it, without being aware of it, her instinct was, I've got to control something. I've I've got to get some control somewhere. And so as a teenager, what she began to do was control her eating. And over time, she developed anorexia. And it wasn't until much later in life that she made the connection between being out of control and the need to control. And I share that story with you because it's a very natural, very human, very instinctive part of how we think and how we behave. And so what was going on in this, these first century churches was a very natural And in some senses, noble thing that these people were doing. I don't think they were consciously sinning. But the problem with these early Christians was that they were not giving any thought at all to the will of God. They were doing what felt right. They were doing what came instinctively. But they were not including references or thoughts about what does God want, what is God's will in their planning. So James reminds them of this, and and he reminds them of two really, really important things. He says, first of all, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We have no clue about what tomorrow's going to bring. And essentially what he's saying when he says that is that control is an illusion, You may think that you have control, that you may think that you have got all your plans and all your ducks set in a row, but the reality is control is an illusion. We don't control our lives. God is sovereign, not us. We're not in control. Then he says this, our lives are like a mist. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Our lives are like a mist. On a summer morning, you get up and there's, you see, look out and there's a bit of mist there. You, look, you go have breakfast, you go back and it's gone. 
We are essentially ephemeral. We're transitory. We're here for a very, very, very brief time, and then we're gone. And our kids remember us, and our grandkids, and unless we're incredibly famous, our grandkids' kids have no clue. We're gone and forgotten. And so James reminds these people of the transitory nature of their lives and the fact that control is an illusion. You can't by going to a city and getting busy and making plans and deciding to do this and deciding to do that. You cannot control the future because God is sovereign and your life is brief. So James says, well, this is what you should say. Instead, verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 15, instead you want to say, if the Lord wills, I will live. If it's God's will, I'm going to live and do this or that. If it's God's will, if it's God's will, we will live and do this or that. Our very life and our future meaning the next heartbeat, the next breath, is all dependent upon the gracious will and sovereign plan of God. God controls the circumstances of our lives. And I think these early Christians had forgotten a couple of things. First of all, they had forgotten that their scattering the plight in which they found themselves at this particular time was in fact the result of the will and the plan of a sovereign God. We've talked about this a number of times during our journey through this book. These people had gotten saved. Jesus has said to them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. I want you to go, I want you to be my disciples and I want you to go and make disciples. Fill the world with the gospel. Get going. And they stayed. Stephen was martyred six years after Jesus died. And nobody had gone anywhere. And so according to the sovereign will of God, Stephen dies. Acts chapter 8 at the very beginning, a severe persecution breaks out and the people were scattered. The Jewish diaspora was tossed out into the country of Israel and the empire. Seized to plant the church. So in fact, their suffering was a consequence of the sovereign plan of God, the will of God. So we too need to remember this. God brings suffering into our lives purposefully, intentionally to accomplish his will. He uses suffering to accomplish purposes in our lives and in his world that would never, ever, ever have happened had it not been for the fact that we go through a valley of suffering. Suffering for a Christian is always purposeful. I want you to flip over. First Peter is right there. Go over to First Peter chapter 4 and look at verse 19 with me. Now, next time you hear somebody talk about the prosperity gospel, tell them they're believing a cult. Because listen to this passage of Scripture. People, Peter is speaking to people who are in very similar circumstances. And he says this, 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God brings suffering into our lives in order to accomplish his purposes and his will. You know, I've experienced that in my life in a number of ways. Most recently, and I, and I shared this with you before, most recently it was back when, in 2014. And I've always had a healthy constitution. I've always been the guy who has gone to the hospital as a pastor and visited the sick people. I've always been the guy who has done the funerals. I've always been healthy. I go to the doctor, go through a bunch of tests, and I sit down in the doctor's office, and he says, Paul, you have prostate cancer. And it's just kind of like when you hear words like that, it's just kind of like, and I was 57, and I thought, gosh, like, what now? And it, I, it was hard. It was not easy. And in many respects, I suffered. I didn't have terribly big, I had an operation, but it, it wasn't sort of like, you know, deep, deep, deep suffering, but it was significant suffering for me. And that through this process, I got to tell you, I think I have learned more and God has changed me more deeply through this painful experience than anything else that has happened in my journey. And so I can look back, what is this now, eight years later, and I can say, thank you, Father, for this process. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you that it was your will that you took me through this experience because I wouldn't be me today had it not been for what you took me through yesterday. Now, thankfully, praise the Lord, on Monday I met with my radiation oncologist. Actually, I didn't even meet with him. I just talked on the phone and he told me that, you know, as a, as a result of the radiation I did this summer, my PSA is undetectable, which is really, really good. And... Well, Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled with that. And it's just, but I, but I realize this, it is a reprieve. My life is a vapor. So is yours. We're here and then we're gone. And after a couple of generations, unless you do something really, really bad, like Hitler or Stalin, you're forgotten. Except God never does. God never does. So when we go through suffering, understand that getting busy, getting active, trying to fix it, you can. God's in control. He does it for a purpose. He takes us through these valleys to transform stuff in our lives, to change us and grow us and shape us in ways that we would never, ever have been growing in had we not gone through that valley. But secondly, these people were making plans without giving any thought to the plan of God, to the will of God. They had been scattered. Why? To propagate the gospel. Why had Stephen been murdered? It was a catalyst. Get out of town. The Jews are killing people. Grab your clothes, grab your kids, head out of Dodge. And God had strategically and sovereignly done that in order to place these little groups of Christians all over the empire as living, vibrant outposts of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the message of the gospel, sharing the transformative power 
of the resurrection. And what was their focus? Was it eternal? Was it evangelistic? Was it about changing the world? Was it about being what the church is being called to be? No, they were, it was temporal. We got to get money. We need to get a house. We need to figure something out. We need to. And see, they had forgotten the focus. They had gotten their eyes off the target. Yes, money's important. All those things are critical. But what did the Lord teach us? Seek first his kingdom, and everything else will look after itself. Get your priorities right. I'll take care of these things. I'll supply all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It seems that they had a worldly focus. And James calls his boastful arrogance. They've forgotten about their calling. They've forgotten why they were redeemed. They've forgotten that they were blood-bought, fully-owned slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've forgotten that they were scattered as seeds to spread the gospel. They were purchased in order to serve the purposes of God in this world. And so are we. And so are we. You're an evangelist. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. You embody the gospel. You are a potential, potent power for Christ in this world. And yeah, you go to work and you make money. But that's not the goal. The goal is to represent Jesus well. You go to school or you teach or you have interaction on your street, you're a stay-at-home mom. But why are you there? To have an influence for the gospel. That the word of God might be in your mouth. That the spirit of God would so control you that people would see transformation in you. We have been saved to represent Jesus. And some of us do that in operating theaters and some of us do it in classrooms and some of us do it when we're homeschooling our children and in, in interaction with the moms in our neighborhood. But wherever we go tomorrow morning, you go as a represent, representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your calling. And these people had forgotten that. They were going out into the world to make money, to make a profit, to do this and to do that and to bring order and structure back into their lives and create some luxury and create some opportunities to live a better life. Now, their kids live a better life. And is there anything wrong with that? No. But that's not foundational. That's not basic. That's not what's catalytic, or it shouldn't be for a Christian. It's catalytic, basic, motivational for the world, but not for us. We serve Christ. So James says this, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, you're sinning. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, no matter how noble, no matter how good, no matter how 
altruistic it is for my wife and my kids. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, then it's sin. You go out in the world and work and, and invest your time and your life and all those good things, those noble pursuits. I want to be the best teacher I possibly can. I'm going to drive this bus so safely. I'm going to live so nobly. If you do that, and that's the only reason that you're doing it, it's sin. Because no matter if you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's about the glory of Jesus. Right? We just sang about that in the last song. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is it or is it not? It's so easy to live without, without a gospel focus, without focusing on the kingdom and the calling that God has placed on our lives. But secondly, he goes on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and he begins to talk about when we suffer injustice, we need to rest in the unchanging word of God. We've talked about the will of God, and now we're going to talk about the word of God. And so James now speaks prophetically to a group that he calls the rich, and it's important to define those. Is he just talking about random, nasty, rich people? I think the answer I think the answer is no. He defines them over in chapter 2. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? So he's already defined them as opponents to the gospel and opponents to the church. That's one thing. Secondly, if you read this passage of Scripture, there is absolutely no indication that he's calling for repentance. Now, if you, if you remember the last passage of Scripture we looked at, the one that Mahir preached on, there was a call to repentance. Weep and mourn. Repent. Here, there is none of that. Their fate is sealed. The die is cast. What's going to happen is going to happen. Then he says to them, you have laid up treasures in the last days. Now, evangelicals differ on this. Some evangelicals will say the last days define that period from the resurrection of Jesus until his second coming. And that's a very popular point of view, and that's one, I would say, the majority of evangelicals hold that. My understanding is a little different. And again, this is an evangelical position. My understanding is that the last days was a, was a reference to the time of, from the resurrection of Jesus until 70 AD. The last days understood meaning the last days of the old covenant as they were prophesied in the Old Testament. Then it tells us that they lived in luxury on the earth. There's a little phrase there on the, the earth which probably should be translated the land. So, for instance, Cindy and I are going to be leading a trip next year to Israel again. And when we go to Israel, people will not talk about Israel, they'll talk about the land. In Greek, it's teskase, a little phrase. But very often in the New Testament, it's just translated sort of an amorphous kind of general earth. But I think in this passage, it should be translated the land, meaning the land of Israel. And then lastly, and I think most significantly, it says in the very last verse there, verse 6, they condemned and murdered the righteous man. Has there ever been a righteous man other than Jesus? No. 
It could be a reference to Stephen or some of the other early Christian martyrs, but I think it's probably a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's other things that we could say about who these rich are, but we simply don't have time. I'll tell you what I think. I think these rich that he's referring to are the religious leaders of Israel who have caused so much suffering and so much pain for the fledgling little church that Christ birthed at his resurrection. I think he's speaking to those who rejected Jesus, those who are now trying to destroy the church, those who have persecuted these believers, those who have said at Jesus' crucifixion, away with him, away with him, we have no king but Caesar. Now it's important to remember this, that for the first six years at least of the early church, but up, up until 70 AD, there were two avenues, both claiming to be the path through which people could be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. Until 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, there were two groups of people claiming to have the path, the avenue, by which people could enter covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. There was the Old Testament Jewish path that had been in existence since God gave the law back in, you know, 1400 B.C., So for 1,400 years, God had been in covenant relationship with his people through the temple, through the blood of animals, through the Levitical priesthood. The other alternative now was the cross, the blood of Christ. The teaching of the apostles versus the teaching of the Sanhedrin stood juxtaposed to one another. And Jews had a terrible dilemma What's right? Do do I honestly believe that a prophet who died in a garbage dump, who people say rose from the dead, is the way that I can now be in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel? Or do I believe that the blood of bulls and goats, as it has been sacrificed for 1,400 years, a system that God himself established through Moses, do I believe that that is the right way? And, it, and people were torn. You read the book of Hebrews, you can see how torn they are. So what does James say? Verse seven of this passage, it says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. He repeats this a bunch. He says in verse eight, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says in verse nine, the judge is standing at the door. The NASB says, standing right at the door. Now, these verses seem to imply a nearness or a close historical proximity. A few more examples you see in the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. Now, as I said at the beginning, we should never be afraid of the plain words of the Bible. So we got to wrestle with this. We have to ask ourselves the question. There is a sense of, imminence here, a sense of historical close proximity and nearness in these words. What do we do with them? Well, what liberal scholars do is they say, well, the early church clearly anticipated a soon coming of Christ. It didn't happen, therefore, we can't trust him. Albert Schweitzer 
who was born in the 1800s, died in about 1960, did a lot of damage to the, to the church. Basically taught Jesus promised to return. He didn't. He's a fraud. Can't trust him. So how do we reconcile this problem? And I think the answer, this is, and this is where I might sound controversial, and this is where I might be wrong. But the answer, I believe, is that when the New Testament speaks about the coming of Jesus, it can be referring to one of two events. Obviously, when it refers to the coming of Jesus, it, re it refers to the physical, visible coming of Jesus at the end of history. You read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, where he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. But the Lord will descend with the shout of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And clearly, those you know, 1 Corinthians, 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and on, like those passages of Scripture speak about Jesus physically, visibly coming back to this world at the end of history to consummate history. But then there are other passages of Scripture that I think refer to a, 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 not a physical coming, but a spiritual coming. A coming that is very similar to God coming to Jerusalem in the form of the armies of Babylon in 586 and bringing judgment against the people of Babylon, uh, against the people of Israel, 586 BC, and taking them into exile for 70 years. It was a spiritual coming. But God came in judgment against Israel. And I think... I think in what happened in 70 AD is a similar coming of judgment against those who rejected Jesus. Now, I'll read you a passage of Scripture. This is from what is called the Olivet Discourse. Mark, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, all, the, all, of the, all the synoptic gospels speak about this. And it says this, verse 5, while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then verse uh, 20 says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the city depart and let those who are out in the country not enter. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Um... Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles is fulfilled. And there's lots and lots and lots of passages where Jesus speaks about that. Now, when Jesus spoke these words prophetically, the world was in the midst of what we call historically the Pax Romana. Rome had established through the sword brutally all over its empire a peace that allowed the gospel to flourish. So when Jesus spoke about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, people would have laughed at him. People would have mocked him because the world had never, ever, ever, to that point in his history, known such pervasive, widespread peace. People would have thought, it can never happen. Every stone of the temple torn down, it'll never happen. But the church believed. They knew he was king. They knew he was priest. And they knew he was prophet. And so they waited for Jesus to do what he said he would do to the rich. And in 70 A.D., 
It happened. Against all odds, the Jews rebelled and the Romans crushed them. But what they did when they crushed the Romans is they destroyed the temple. And suddenly, the question, how do we get to God? Is it through the blood of bulls and goats? Is it through the Levitical priesthood? Is is it through the sacrificial system? Well, of course not. Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. Jesus said the temple would be torn down. Jesus said that the old covenant system would come to an end. And what does that leave us with? The blood of the Son of God. When we were doing one of our trips to Israel years ago, I, we had a, we had a, he's now dead, and I think he's with the Lord, but I, we had a tour guide, and his name was Micha Ashkenazi, wonderful guy. He wore blue T-shirts every day. The first day he wore a blue T-shirt, the next day he had a sign on, this is not the same one I wore yesterday. <laughs> and every day you had a T-shirt, this is not the one I wore yesterday, blue T-shirts. I said to him one day, we were sitting in a hotel up in, up in uh, Tiberias in the Sea of Galilee. I said to him, I said, Micha, what do you guys do? I said, the temple's gone. You know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What do you do? He says, I don't know. And eventually, through a friend, I learned that he had given his life to Christ. Then he got Alzheimer's and died. But you see, in that moment, when Jesus fulfilled what he promised he would do in coming in judgment against those who had rejected the Son of God, he answered the question once forever. How can we be in covenant relationship with the God of Israel? And the answer is the only way is through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. So what James is saying to these early Christians, he says, believe the word of God. Trust. Don't waver. Hang in there. Yes, it's unjust. Yes, it's unfair. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, you've suffered. But Jesus is coming and he will make it right. Now that was... 2,000 years ago almost. But the same message is true for us. Because Jesus is coming and he will make it right. God is going to return one day. Jesus will bring history to a conclusion. And every right will be wrong, every wrong will be righted. He will rectify every injustice. He will wipe away every tear. And that day, all the wrongs will be made right and all the injustices will be rectified. And you know by experience that we live in a world today that is unjust. It is filled with corruption, lies, exploitation. And so we wait, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, for a savior We wait for a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies into bodies like his glorious body. We wait with the injustices of life knowing this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And so like these first century Christians, we have a choice. We can rage against the injustice. We can chafe under it. Or we can turn the other cheek and rest in the promises of God 
that he will judge, that he will fix it, that he will make it right. We can rest in the promises of God that that injustice, whether it's persecution, you've been maligned, you've been passed over for a promotion, you've been treated terribly because of your commitment to Jesus. We can rest in the truth, in the knowledge that God has promised and he will keep his promises and that will be dealt with. Life's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Suffering is something that we can never escape. But whether we're suffering the circumstances of our lives or the circumstances of inequity and injustice and the circumstances of of violation and hurt, we can and must rest in the will of God, right, and in his word, what he's promised. He is faithful, and he will do it. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that we can trust you in your sovereignty and in your goodness. You take us through difficult times. You put us in situations where we are inclined to control. Father, I just thank you that in those times of difficulty, you shape and mold us. And I thank you, Lord, that you've sent us out into this world with a fundamental purpose, and that is to serve you. Lord, you've made promises, and we trust in those promises. We look around us at government and circumstances around us. We look at what's going on in our world personally, and we just, we feel sometimes, Lord, that we're victims. And so we wait. We patiently wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day when the heavens will be torn open. And we hear the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and we see Christ And the graves are opened. The dead in Christ rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air with him. And you will make it right. That day when you wipe away every tear. Cause us to forget the injustice. Lord, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, we trust. And we rest. In the sovereign, faithful God that we worship. We love you, Lord. We bless your holy name.